please stand as you are able for the reading from the scriptures today, the book of Proverbs, chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. The rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. The clever see danger and hide, but the simple go on and suffer for it. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. The cautious will keep far from them. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Blair, for reading the word for us today, and welcome to all of you. I want to add my word of greeting to each of you on this uh, cool fall Sabbath morning. Uh, uh, Next week, uh, we are expecting a cool fall Sabbath morning. Uh, We're so grateful to be in worship together today. And for our third graders, uh, we've been handing out these uh, scriptures at all of our services this weekend, and we're so proud of our third graders and so grateful that we can give them a tool that will see them through their lives and how exciting. I kind of polled the other group a little bit. I want to poll you all just out of curiosity. How many of you uh, have received one of these third grade Bibles in the past? Raise your hand high, my goodness. Uh, Probably a third of the room or more. Uh, They are a little smaller now than they used to be. Have you noticed that? Uh, back in my day, they were, they were large and hard to carry, but these are, these are smaller, and we're so grateful to be able to give these gifts uh, to our children. Our middle schoolers are on retreat. They're at Horton Haven, and I talked with Adam Jones last night. 120 or so of our middle schoolers are there having worship together, and we remember them in our prayers. And how special is it to have Eli? and his wife, Marae, with us from all the way from Beirut. We welcome you, sir. Uh, it is a great joy to have you here. He is, as was mentioned, the president of the seminary there that we're partnering with, and some of our Middle East folks, uh, initiative folks, are sitting with them and, and uh, hospitality this weekend. We're grateful to have you with us, Ali. It's a great joy always to be with you. Uh, If you have been with us since the second week in August, you know that we're nearing completion on this series on Proverbs. We've been diving into the wisdom literature of the Hebrew Scriptures. There are three books that we call wisdom writings, Ecclesiastes, Job, and Proverbs. And we're, we're going to be looking at all three of those during this year, but we're in our eighth week, uh, this particular day in this series called Wise Up. And we chose this particular series during this time because we live in the age of information or information overload, as we often talk about how you can fact check from your pew, the pastor, on any given point at any moment during the sermon. I hope you won't do that. And that's also a cue to check your cell phones to make sure they're off. But we have massive amounts of information at our fingertips, in our iPads and iPods and and iPhones and all of that, and yet there seems to be a deficiency of wisdom in the land. 
Information is not the same as application. Knowledge is not the same as wisdom. The Hebrew word is hakma, which means prudence. It means discretion. It means discernment. And over the last seven weeks, we've been thinking about the correlation of wisdom to reverence, trust, work ethic, discipline or self-control. We've talked about the correlation of wisdom to speech, that the Hebrew, Hebrew sages believed that the way you talk is a litmus test of wisdom. The way you talk to each other or about each other is a cue of wisdom. And then we talked about the connection of wisdom to humility, and last week to humor. Next week, I'm going to talk about the correlation of wisdom to community. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And then we'll finish it with a sermon about the connection of wisdom to spiritual formation. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when she is old, she'll not depart from it today. I want to talk with you for a few minutes about the connection between wisdom and reputation, or wisdom and character, integrity. I don't know about you, but I've heard this verse all my life. I can remember it as a boy, Proverbs 22, verse 1. Read it with me. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and favor is better than silver and gold. I think that's true, although I would argue with the text in this regard. When I was born, I didn't choose my name. It was a gift. I was given the name. But Solomon is saying that building on that name is something that is so critical to reputation or to character. It's interesting that in Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this scripture in what we call the message, uh, I like the way he translates it. I think it's even easier to understand. Read Mr. Peterson's translation with me. A sterling reputation is better than striking it rich. A gracious spirit is better than money in the bank. That's true. When I see that word reputation, I remember the Latin root of that word. Do you know what it means? It means consideration. Reputation is sort of the general opinion that others have about you. Did you know that you have a reputation? Uh, in our staff meeting on Tuesday, we sometimes talk about you. Everybody has one. Everybody has a reputation. I've noticed, however, that sometimes we use that word more often in a very negative way. Like I heard someone, overheard someone say the other day, well, you know, she has a reputation. And I didn't stick around to find out what it was. I knew it wasn't good. Or you may have heard it said of someone else, well, you know, he, he has a history. And it's not a good thing. Usually, the way we use that word reputation, it's kind of a synonym for baggage. It's another way of saying there is a jaded past. He has skeletons in the closet. But for Solomon, this word is about character. Now, it's interesting to me that the Proverbs writer begins by comparing and contrasting character with wealth. That's interesting. 
We, we often speak of wealth as a blessing. You hear it when someone is a person of means. Well, he's really blessed, or God has really blessed them as though it is a mark of blessing or a mark of wisdom. And it can be, but not necessarily. The truth is, it depends on how we made our money and how we use our resources. And Solomon has a whole lot to say about that. I'll give you a couple. Proverbs 19, 17, whoever is generous to the poor actually lends to the Lord and God will repay his deeds. Or how about 22, verse 16, a little after what Blair, what you read for us. Whoever oppresses the poor in order to increase his own wealth or gives only to the rich will come to poverty. Or 22, verse 9, whoever has a bountiful eye or a generous eye will be blessed for she shares her bread with the poor. You see the connection? We saw it last Thursday night at the South Africa banquet. What a banquet. Uh, Lovey. Samanga, Samanga's wife, Lovey Kamala, was here. Talk about a good name. That's not a bad name, is it, Lovey? And they were all here. And together, you all support sponsorships for scholarships for nearly 400 students who live in settlements. Most of these little shacks are no bigger than 300 square feet. And they're at school early because of a scholarship that you're providing. I heard the other day that for every dollar that you put in one of those school children right now in terms of their education, they will realize $5 in their adult working life. And more important than the means is the spirit that's happening in that ministry, how God is using that. There is a link between wisdom and generosity. I've seen a lot of wise people that were very generous. I don't recall seeing a lot of ungrateful people who are wise. I've seen some who are smart, but wisdom and generosity go together. By the way, did you know that Jesus had a reputation for being gracious to the poor? Jesus had a reputation for being extremely generous to those in the margins. In fact, he has a name for it. He made a name for himself in that way. Now, names are important, wouldn't you agree? I mean, that's, that's why when we're expecting, we spend so much time trying to pick the right name. Names have meaning. Uh, let me prove it to you. If, if I were to call the name out today, Adolf, yeah, you would have an image, wouldn't you? Or how about the name Judas? I've done a lot of baptisms, never baptized a baby named Judas, never will. Or how about Jezebel or Lucifer? There's a reason we don't use these names anymore. They're disreputable. They've been tarnished. We prefer names, rightly so, like Peter and Paul, like James and John, Matthew, Andrew, Stephen. How about Sarah? Rachel, I love Mary and Ruth, Deborah and Elizabeth. And if I just called your name, would you please raise your hand? See what I mean? Those are names with a history 
with a good reputation. I was studying the names the other day of the babies that we baptized in the last year. Did you know that we baptized 52 babies last year? I mean, that's like one per week. I don't know what's in the water, but it's good. It's good. And I was looking over their names, and I want to I share some of these names with you because I think it's very interesting. Last week, we, named, we baptized a little girl named Vera. Haven't heard that in a while. Lillian. Before that, a baby named Gabriel. We, his parents referred to him as Gabe the Babe. <laughs> then we baptized Emmett, Nora, Cecilia, Ethan, Bennett. Here's one I haven't heard in years, Blaine. We baptized a six-month-old girl named Ruby and Sadie and Virginia and little fellows named Ford and Holt. And when you see that, you go, what's going on? They're family names. These are names of grandparents and great-grandparents who have left a legacy And these young parents with their babies stand here and somehow they want the same character in their child that they saw in granddaddy and grandmother. It's better than money in the bank, a good name. Sometimes we want a a different name. My best friend in North Georgia who's a retired pastor, you know what his name is? Dumas. He's never been happy about it, (laughs) least of all in middle school. Imagine being named Dumas in middle school. That's his heart. And so he asked us to call him D. And I do most of the time except when I'm upset with him. (laughs) Dumas. I I was named after my dad. I'm a junior. uh, And he was named after his dad's best friend who happened to be a banker in Washington, D.C., whose name was Wallace Davis, and I'll never forget meeting him. I was eight years old. It was in Harrisonburg, Virginia, at a Presbyterian assembly. I never will forget it. He was in his 80s. I never knew my grandfather, but I knew my grandfather's best friend, who was my namesake. And I remember he was so loving and he was so gentle and gracious and his wife, Kate, too. And I remember thinking two things. Number number one is, I will never be that old. (laughs) And the second thing was, I want to be like him if ever I do. And and I've realized through the years that, that just bearing that man's name, it's a gift. And it's a responsibility. There's an expectation that comes with the name. In the Old Testament, names were really, really important. Uh, Names were thought to convey uh, a sense of purpose, sense of destiny. I mean, every name in the Hebrew canon, it has meaning, like Adam, which means ground or dirt, reminds us of the creation. Eve, you know what it means? Mother of humanity. Moses has meaning, drawn out of the water. Miriam, ocean of sorrow, reminds us of the Exodus. Ruth means companion, friend. Samuel, God hears. David, beloved. Jeremiah means God appointed. Every name, your name, 
has meaning. There's a story in your name. To know somebody by name in the Old Testament was thought to give you power over their identity, over their personhood. That's why in Exodus chapter 3, you remember the burning bush scene where Moses uh, sensed the presence of God in a fire that was burning a bush, but it wasn't consumed? And what did he do? He slipped off his sandals. He realized he's on holy ground, and he fell on his knees, and he knew the Lord was speaking to him. And he asked, what is your name? And you remember the Lord's answer? (laughs) He said, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. What kind of name is that? And it was the Lord's way of saying, you can't control me. You can't put me in a box. You can't pin me down. In ancient days, the name of God was so holy, was so sacred, was so divine that the Israelites wouldn't even dare to speak it. Maybe this is why one of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And I don't think that just means profanity or cursing. I think sometimes the profanity of the church is that we speak of God in such a cavalier manner, as though he's like a grandfather instead of the creator. Holy is the name. I've noticed sometimes when people have a special revelation or a special encounter with God, they actually change their names. There's some epiphanies that are so powerful, a Damascus road, a burning bush, where suddenly someone who's been living one way completely does a 180 and changes their name. Like Jacob, you remember Jacob? You know what his name means? It's fitting. It means heel. (laughs) When he was born, he was grabbing the heel of his twin brother Esau. But after his encounter with God, after that latter experience, His name became Israel, one who struggles with God and prevails. Changed everything about him. Or Simon, whose name means to listen, became Peter, whose name means foundation. It means rock solid. Or Saul, whose name means interrogator, became Paul after Jesus, which means humility. An experience that causes a new birth, a new name, a new character, a new reputation. It's in the name. But I want to utter a word of caution at this point in the sermon, and you know this is true, that while reputation is important, reputation is not always reality, is it? Who you are in public, who I am in public, is not always who I may be in private, and that's a shame. Richard Rohr, this Franciscan monk whose retreat some of us attended a few years ago, who's written a book called The Universal Christ, speaks of the private self as being the shadow self. He writes, and I quote, we all have a persona, that is a public image, a self-image that is built on what most people want from you or want out of you 
or will reward you for or what we choose to identify with. But your shadow, says Father Rohr, is what you refuse to see about yourself. It's what you don't want anybody else to see or know. And Jesus has a name for this. He calls it the log in our eye. That's in there, but you can't always see it. I can't always see it. And even worse, Jesus says sometimes our vision using this log becomes the way that we see other people, which he says is why we tend to dislike people who are just like us. And I've discovered that much of the work and sanctification is work, isn't it? Ongoing discipline and spiritual maturity is work, and much of the sanctification work is about becoming aware of the log that is in my own eye, my own bias, my own prejudice, my own limitations. Paul said it's like looking through a dim glass. That's what he said. It's like looking through a blurry mirror. And sanctification is a process of wising up, of growing up in grace, which also includes dying to myself so that reputation and character become the same, so that me and my shadow become one. It isn't easy, but it can happen so that what people say you are and what you are is the same thing. Now, you know it doesn't, it doesn't happen overnight. Sanctification is not a microwave. It's a crock pot. You have to simmer because the ego has a hard time of abandoning its own throne. But until I die to myself, that log. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 23, speaking to the Pharisees. He said, we need not only to clean the outside of the cup, We need to work on the inside. And what he means is our faith is not only about external appearances. It's about the inside. It's about the internal. It's about the attitude. It's about the motivation and intention. This is exactly what Jesus meant when he was preaching on the mountaintop in Matthew 6 when he expressed concern over superficial religiosity. He said, when you pray or when you fast or when you give alms, don't do it like the hypocrites who stand out in the middle of the street or up in the pulpit like me. Don't do it for appearance sake, but do it only for your Father who's in heaven. The word hypocrite is an interesting word. In the Greek language, it's theater talk. It means mask. And it was a reminder that if you went to the Greek plays, someone could change characters simply by removing one mask and putting on another and becoming a different person. Reputation is not reality. Jesus had a reputation with the religious professionals of his day, and it wasn't good. The Pharisees were pretty tough on Jesus, but it turns out that Jesus was more concerned about our redemption than he was his own reputation. He wasn't interested in photo ops or infomercials. 
He was interested in lost sheep. And he risked his reputation for love's sake. In fact, Philippians says he made himself of no reputation at all. And because of that, his name has become a synonym for agape, unconditional love, unwarranted, undeserved, sacrificial love. David Brooks, who's written this book called The Second Mountain, said, in our culture, everything is a transaction and nothing is a gift. But in the kingdom of God, everything is a gift. It's all a gift. When you take on the name of Jesus and put your whole trust in his grace, it changes everything. And lo and behold, you begin to take on the character of the name, which by the way, do you know what the name Jesus means? Yeshua. God is our salvation. That's our identity. And that's why we sing. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate, fall, bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. That's, that's why we sing. Take the name of Jesus with you. Child of sorrow and of woe, it will joy and comfort give you. Take it, then where'er you go, there's power in the name. It's better than money in the bank. I had a funeral this week. I'm almost through. I had a funeral this week for Mary Huffman. Greg played. She was a lifetime Methodist. She was baptized in 1944 at the age of 10 in Munford, Tennessee. Anybody ever heard of Munford, Tennessee? Yeah, it's just north, what, 25 miles north of Memphis. She was 10 years old when she confessed the name. She joined this church in 1971. She and her husband, who was a highway patrolman, came. He was a veteran. They joined the church in 71, 85 years. Mary devoted her life to Christ. I, I said to her one day, you know, the older I get, the more I like to hang out with old folks. I do. I, don't get me wrong. I love people of all ages, but I like to hang around old folks sometimes. And she said to me one day, she said, well, I'm there. She said, you know, you're getting older when the candles cost more than the cake. I said, I get it. And I said, Mary, I told my wife the other day, there, there are three things that happen when you get older. One is you begin to lose a little memory and I can't remember the other two. <laughs> um, but Mary had a big old heart. She was a steel magnolia is what she was. She knew how to love. And I shared this little story because I thought it kind of epitomized her. You've probably heard it. It's a little excerpt from a children's book called The Velveteen Rabbit. I want to share just this in closing. The skin horse had lived longer in the nursery than any of the others. In fact, he was so old that his brown coat was bald in patches and showed the seams underneath, and most of the hairs in his tail had been pulled out to string bead necklaces. He was very wise, for he had seen a long succession of mechanical toys arrive to boast and swagger, and by and by break their mainsprings and pass away, 
and he knew that they were only toys and would never turn into anything else. For nursery magic is very strange and wonderful, and only those playthings that are old and wise and experienced, like the skin horse, understand all about it. What is real? asked the rabbit one day when they were lying side by side near the nursery fender before Nana came to tidy the room. Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and a stick-out handle? Oh, no, said the skin horse. Real isn't how you are made. It's a thing that happens to you. Like when a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? Asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. But when you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked. Well, it doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. Takes a long time, and that's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily or have sharp edges or have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter because once you're real, you can never be ugly except to people who don't understand. I want to be real. I want you to be real. There is a reality that is deeper than appearance, and it's unconditional love. That's the reality that we live in. And when you taste it, it changes you in here, and you become real. I I think it's like being reborn. (laughs) It's kind of like being renamed, and for sure, It's better than money in the bank. And the only way you can keep it is to give it. In Jesus' name.